is Joshua 21, which is found on page 172 of your pew Bible. I will be reading uh, verses 1 to 8, and then verse 42 to 45. Now the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh and Canaan, and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture lands for our livestock. So as the Lord commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the, ta- the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. The first lot came out on the Kohathites, clan by clan. The Levites, who were descendants of Aaron the priest, were allotted 13 towns in the, pro- in the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The rest of Kohath's descendants were allotted 10 towns from the clans of the tribes of Ephraim, Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The descendants of Gershon were allotted 13 towns in the clans of, and tribes of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. The descendants of Merari, clan by clan, received towns from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. So the, tri- so the Israelites allotted to the Levites these towns and their pasture lands as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Verse 42. The towns of the Levites in the territory held by the Israelites were 48 in all, together with their pasture lands. Each of these towns and pasture lands surrounding it, this was true for all these towns. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. This is the Lord's word. Heed unto it. We're actually coming quickly to the conclusion of Joshua, or so it would seem. Now, we've still got a couple of chapters left, so you'll, you'll have to see what happens next. It's, it's pretty disappointing what, uh, what happens just on the heels of this, and especially as we move after that into the book of Judges. But here as we arrive in, in chapter 21, this ends the section, if you remember, from, from chapters 13 to 21, where we see the allocation of the land. We see the land that was given by God to his people as promised. But as we come here to chapter 21, we see that 11 of the 12 tribes have received their inheritance. Every tribe has has received land except for one, except for the tribe of Levi. They did not inherit the land like the rest of the Israelites. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you're probably very familiar with the Levites, and you're probably very familiar with their role as servants of initially the tent of meeting, and then eventually when the temple was established, they became servants of the temple. And so you'd be tempted to conclude when you see that, that the reason why they did not receive their inheritance among the rest of, uh, or like the rest of the tribes, was because of their special role. And that is true, but that is only part of the story. In order to understand what was really happening here, you have to go back earlier. You have to go back to Genesis. In fact, to Genesis chapter 34. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 34. 
This passage, this chapter presents for us a shameful incident where we see the, the rape of the daughter of Jacob and Leah. We see the rape of Dinah by Shechem, who was a Hivite. And after he had defiled her, he wanted to marry her. And in fact, Shechem also wanted the, the rest of the women of Israel to marry the Hivite men. But Levi and Simeon, the, daughter, the sons rather of Jacob, were horribly offended. And so they should have been by what Shechem had done. So they de deceived Shechem in telling him that he could marry her if he was circumcised and the rest of the men of his city were circumcised. So Shechem fell for the ruse and went back to the Hivites and convinced all of the men that they should be circumcised as well by telling them that, that if they did this, they would gain not only the Israelite women, but they would gain all of their property too. So read here in verse 25, that on the third day, when they were sore, the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. So they went into the city when the men were sore and unable to defend themselves and they killed all of the males and they took the plunder and left with their daughter and went back to Jacob. But Jacob was angry and he said to his sons, to Levi and Simeon in verses 30 and 31, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And so Levi and Simeon responded in verse 31, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? It was a horrible situation. And the brothers felt like they needed to defend their sister's honor by taking vengeance on the men of the city. But what they should have done is they should have left it to the Lord to avenge her. We talked about this at some length last week. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so it might be easy for you to sit here and self-righteously judge these men and say that, they, that what they did was wicked, that they shouldn't have done that. But before you do, I want you to think for a moment about how easy it is for you to take vengeance into your own hands or to take vengeance into your own heart. Some of you in this room are probably being tempted or have submitted to that temptation even now. But watch out. Sin has its consequences. Simeon and Levi were punished for their violent revenge when Jacob was pronouncing the blessings on the rest of his sons. Turn to Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, verses 5 to 7, we read as part of the blessings that were being put on the brothers that there was actually a curse put on Simeon and Levi. 
This is what Jacob said. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So the event that we're reading about today, almost 400 years later, was the fulfillment of that curse that was put on Levi. Simeon also was, was scattered. He didn't that the tribe of, of Simeon didn't inherit their own land. They actually inherited land that was like an island in the midst of the tribe of Judah. We see that in Joshua 19.1. And Levi was to receive absolutely no direct inheritance of the land. We'll see this in a moment. But that is also not the end of the story. Look to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. Here we see another shameful incident, the incident of the golden calf. So Aaron and the Israelites here had grown tired of waiting for Moses, who was up on the, on the mountain receiving God's commandments, and they made an idol, they made a golden calf. And they said in verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Those words stick in my throat. God had just miraculously delivered them out of Egypt from Pharaoh and his army by dividing the Red Sea. And before the waves had even really subsided, here they were making an idol and saying, that's the God that delivered you. Shameful idolatry right on the heels of God's profound blessing. But again, before you self-righteously judge the people of Israel for this. Think about how easy it is for you to turn from the living God to idols. Maybe it's your home, or maybe it's your car, or maybe it's the box that sits on your living room floor, or maybe it's a relationship, or maybe it's your job. But anything that you turn to and prefer above worship of God is an idol. Anything that you turn to to find your happiness other than God is an idol. But you see, this time, this time the tribe of Levi did the right thing. When Moses came down the mountain and stood in the gate of the camp, in verse 26 he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So with this incident, the tribe of Levi was now marked out for special blessing in the Lord's service. They were marked out for specific religious duties. They were set apart from the rest of the nation for service to God. 
And as we know, from the tribe of Levi came who we refer, referred to as the priests and the Levites, with Aaron being the first high priest. And they performed specific religious duties that were really not too different in some ways from, from today's pastors. The terms priest and Levite came to delineate different responsibilities, but they were all of the same tribe, the tribe of Levi. They functioned, as I said earlier, in the tent of the meeting and eventually in the temple. And they were made up of three families that we read about this morning, the families of Kohath, Gershon, and Merari, and each of them had their own specific responsibilities. So here we see, even though they had rebelled against the Lord earlier by taking vengeance upon themselves, then in Exodus 32, we see that they actually were obedient in performing God's vengeance. They were, and they were blessed for it. Did that undo the sin of Levi, their father? No, it didn't. That sin still had their, its consequence. But however, this time, their zealousness for righteousness was submitted to God. Their, their zealousness was submitted to God. Now, I want to warn you of something here. We all, as Christians have roles. We all as Christians have parts to play in God's church and in God's world for the building up of his kingdom. And we all have been given specific gifts and certain things and certain, certain roles and certain things we have to do in order to fulfill God's purposes. To do those works we read of in Ephesians 2.10 that have been prepared in advance for us that we should walk in them. And we all have individual strengths. We all have individual gifts that God has given us to be used for his glory. But you need to be very, very careful here. Because sometimes the very gift that you have and the very strength that you have, if used for yourself, if not submitted to God and his plan, can be the very thing that actually dishonors God and is used in disobedience to God. And that's the case here for the Levites. Levi and his descendants were naturally zealous, a good thing. But when that was not submitted to God and his plan and his way, that zealousness was used in rebellion. So think about that very carefully. Think about the various ways that God has gifted you. Think about the various services that you perform for the kingdom. Maybe it's gifts of service. Don't ever let that be an occasion for pride when people encourage you for what they see you doing. Maybe you've been, been given a, a gift of, of discernment and you're able to, to, to see right and wrong. Don't go off in your own strength and, and in, a, in, a, in a way that's harsh or ungentle confront people. And that's, that's one that, that I have had to struggle with. Maybe you've been given a gift of, of, with musical ability. Don't ever use that for your own glory. Maybe you've been given a gift to particularly be able to, to understand God's word and apply God's word. Don't ever use that in your own way for your own glory. Do you see here that the Levites were punished because of the sin of their forefather? 
and they were scattered throughout the land. Like I said, sin has its consequences. But I want you to see this morning how even that very sin, God, and the consequences of that sin, God turned it around and made it a blessing. Remember, the Levites were set apart for service to God. So the very fact that they were scattered throughout the nations, rather throughout the nation of Israel, gave the nation of Israel easy access to the Levites. And it enabled them to be able to perform those duties for which they were set apart because they were there strategically interspersed throughout the nation. See, do you see here the principle of Romans 8.28 at work? That all things really do work together for good for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, don't get me wrong. God detests your sin. He hates your sin. But God, in his sovereignty, can turn around even your sin and the consequences of your sin to be able to be used for his glory and for your good. So, fellow Christian, consider the sins of your past. The sins for which you have repented. Those sins that are under the blood of Jesus. And think about how God, maybe even already, is using that for his glory and for your good. Or maybe think even about the difficult circumstances that you are facing the trial that is in your life at this very moment. Think about how God is at work in those circumstances. Think about the good that he is bringing through those circumstances and the good that he will bring through those circumstances. Whether you see it or not, it's there. It's there. You need to train yourself to look for it, resting on the promises of God. So all that serves as background information. That's all background information for where we are today here in Joshua chapter 21. You might be asking, well, okay, I'm, I'm not a Levite. I'm not interspersed through the land of Canaan. Maybe you're thinking, well, hasn't, hasn't the priesthood really already served its purpose? Isn't it true that there really is no more priesthood? Well, if you're saying that, you're right. Turn with me now, please, to Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, we see a theme that is, is, is really repeats itself throughout the whole book. And that's the way that, that old covenant patterns, and particularly here as we'll see, the priesthood points ahead to Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus, we read, is the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant than the covenant that was made with Israel. And look down in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So that the tribe of Levi, and particularly here the priests, had performed their purpose. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we see that it all pointed to the salvation that can be found only in Jesus. The priesthood has served its purpose, and there is no more priestly office. And that's yet another way that the Roman Catholic Church gets it wrong. However, the priesthood does still continue in you, Christian, in you. In 1 Peter 2.9, we read, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the inheritance of the Levites then points ahead. It foreshadows or is typology or paints a picture of our inheritance. It all points to our inheritance. So in the time that I have left, I want us to see first how the Lord's land is our inheritance, then how the Lord's providence is our inheritance, and then how the Lord's rest is our inheritance. So first, as we saw, the the other 11 tribes of Israel had already received their inheritance, but not the Levites. So we read here in verse 2. They said to them at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with pasture lands for our livestock. So the, the, the Levites knew, they rested on the promise of God. They knew that Moses had commanded, that, through, that God had commanded through Moses, that they would be given cities to dwell in. So they appealed to Joshua and to the leaders of Israel based on this promise. And then we know that that's exactly what happened, that each each tribe gave the Levites cities out of their land to dwell in. And they were given 48 cities scattered throughout all of the other tribes. And we see this in verses 41 and 42. And then in verses 4 to 40, we see that how the allocation actually came out. But you see, the Levites didn't actually possess any land. They, they didn't own it. They were actually just users of the land. The cities that were given to them were the, for them to dwell in along with their families, but they didn't actually own them. So even though the rest of the nation was given the promised land, Israel, the, the, the Levites weren't given any of the land. But this promise, this promised land is not the actual reality. It's not the reality. It points ahead. It points to uh, the promise of God. And it, it points, brother and sister, to our inheritance of God's promised land. Our promised land is God's promised land. Riddle Barger explains that Israel dwells in the land of promise in anticipation of that greater rest and blessing in that better land that even now God is preparing for those who love him. 
The land of Canaan is intended to point us ahead to heavenly things yet to come, the final realization of those promises that God made to Abraham. Canaan is the type of which heaven is the reality. So just like the Levites didn't own the land that they lived on, neither do we own the land that we live on. Yes, you may own the deed or the title to the property that you currently live on, but it is not your land. You may be a citizen of Canada or of Germany or of South Africa, but that is not your true citizenship. Your true citizenship is in heaven. In Hebrews 11.10, we read about Abraham, who was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That is the city to which we hope and look. Abraham had faith, but he did not receive the promise. He knew that he was an exile and a stranger on the earth. Brother and sister, just as we are exiles and strangers on the earth. Abraham was seeking a homeland, but it wasn't an earthly homeland. It was a heavenly homeland. Verse 16 says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Brother and sister, God is not ashamed to be called our God. We have all committed heinous heinous sins against him. But he is not ashamed to be called your God. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. Jesus said in John 14, 2 and 3, I, it's for in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And there where I am, you may be also. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. And he's coming back to get you. He is coming for you. Rejoice. Rejoice with eager anticipation in the hope that he is coming soon that one day he's either going to take you at the end of your life to be with him or he is going to come back and call you to himself and you will meet him in the air. You need to train yourself. Again, train yourself to look ahead to that day. You may have heard people say that don't be so heavenly minded so that you're of no earthly good. Now, it might be very popular and catchy, but it is completely unbiblical. When you look throughout history, it is the people who have been the most heavenly-minded that have been of the most earthly good. Think for a moment of William Carey, the father of modern missions. He was the first missionary to India. If not in 2,000 years, he might have actually been the first missionary to India ever. Think of George Whitfield, who proclaimed the gospel to tens of thousands of people and was used mightily of God in the Great Awakening to call many to himself. 
Think of George Mueller who set up orphanages in, in England and ministered through the course of his life to over 10,000 orphans. Think of William Wilberforce, the British politician who fought for 26 years to end the slave trade and then fought for another 26 years to abolish slavery in England altogether. What did all of these men have in common? They were all evangelical Christians. They all believed implicitly in the sovereignty of God. But they also believed that they had a responsibility out of love to God and love to their fellow man to overturn the effects of the fall in their spheres of influence. They sought to overturn the spiritual effects of the fall by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the only way to the Father and the, the only way that you can come into relationship with Him is by turning away from your sins and following Him. And they sought to overturn the physical effects of the fall by meeting people's material needs, by providing for them food and clothing and shelter, and in the case of the slaves, freedom. So how has God called you to overturn the effects of the fall in your sphere of influence? We've talked about this many times, that you are here as an ambassador of God. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You are to be commanding men and women to repent. You have been strategically placed by God in this world with work to do for his glory in the strength that he provides. So I want to ask you, are you seeking an earthly city? Or are you seeking a heavenly city? The dominant thoughts of your heart and the words of your mouth and the actions of your life reveal where your heart lies. Are you focused on the things of this life? Or are you focused on the things of your eternal life? Until we die or the Lord takes us home, we have work to do. And we need to trust that along the way that God will provide everything that we need to serve Him. That if we seek first the kingdom of heaven and His righteousness, that everything that we need will be added unto us. So that brings me to my second point. The Lord's providence is our inheritance. The Lord's providence is our inheritance. You see in our passage that the Levites not only received cities, but they also received the surrounding pasture lands for their flocks to graze in. Each time that a city is mentioned in this chapter, the associated pasture lands that surrounded the city are given as a package deal that they were given not only the city, but the land surrounding it for their herds and for their, their flocks to feed in. And all of these came from the tithes and offerings of the rest of the, of the people of Israel. That the people of Israel gave to the Levites out of their inheritance. So they inherited not only land, but everything that they needed materially in order 
to serve God and to serve them in gospel service. Numbers 18.21 says, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. We also see it in Joshua 13.14. To the tribe of Levi alone Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord of Israel are their inheritance. So God gave to the Levites out of the, the tithes and offerings of the rest of the nation. And then the Levites themselves also gave an offering. It was, it was a tithe of a tithe, so to speak. But this pattern of giving illustrates a pr the principle of giving back to God a portion of that which he has given us. Although we, we commonly think of a tithe as 10% of one's income, there were actually several tithes commanded in the Old Testament. And the average giving of the, of the obedient Israelite was actually more like 20% of their, of, their, of their income. Not only were there, there annual tithes beyond the, the regular one, but there were also ones that were to take place every two and every three years. And there were special things that were to be done every seven years and then also in the year of Jubilee. And there was also beyond that, there was a free will offering beyond that which was commanded. Now this principle of, of proportional giving continues into the New Testament. And we can see clearly from Scripture how we are to provide for ministers of the gospel, for pastors and evangelists and missionaries, so that they can devote themselves wholeheartedly to the service of the Lord. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you will not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. But it's so easy for us to default to a legalistic 10% of our giving. But as is always the case, in the New Covenant, we see the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. It's not about legalistic commands, but about stewardship of what God has given us out of love for God and love for our fellow human beings. So we give to God from what he has first given to us. We don't pay the tax man and pay our, our mortgage payment or our rent bill and get our gas and our food, and then give God what is left over. I've heard it said that, that the first creditor out of all of our, our income is God himself. So we don't give what, what's left over. We give to God from the first fruits of what we receive. That's why we, we hear in the hymn, we give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be, all that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. Malachi warned in, in chapter 3.8 that the people were robbing God in their tithes and their offerings. And the Lord in that passage said that, that the people should put him to the test. Put God to the test by being generous in their giving and see if God would not open the windows of heaven and pour out his blessing on them 
so that there was no more need. And I would encourage you to test God in that, to be obedient in what God has given you, and to see if he is not going to pour out his blessing on you. Your heavenly Father knows everything that you need. He's your Father in heaven. And he will give to you out of the abundance of his riches. So when you understand that God miraculously, supernaturally, providentially provides for all of your needs, it turns your concept of giving on its head. It helps you to give out of faith. It helps you to give out of faith to the Lord. When you consider that, that you are a fellow heir with Christ, and when you consider that, that, that you are also the heir of Christ, it completely changes your perspective. My final point is that the Lord's rest is our inheritance. So let's turn to the final passage of this chapter, verses 43 to 45. The commentator Davis calls this this passage the theological heart of the book of Joshua. It ties together themes that have been present throughout the whole book. But really not just from, from the book of Joshua, we see it as the fulfillment of the promises that God has been giving to his people for over 400 years. The Lord has given them the land. He has given them rest on, their, on every side. He has given their enemies into their hands. If this were a novel, you'd expect to see the words, the end, at the end of this chapter. Or if it was a fairy tale, you'd expect to see the words, and they all lived happily ever after. But did they really live happily ever after? Did they really have rest? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. As we'll see in in, um, chapters 22 through 24, that that wasn't really the case. And if you read on in Judges, you'll see that that really wasn't the case. That that their, their enemies did rise up. But you'll see that it's out of the pattern of their disobedience, their rebellion against God, and then God would raise up an oppressor to oppress the people, and then the people would cry out to God, and then he would send a judge to deliver them, and then there would be peace in the land, then the judge would die, and then they'd go back to rebellion against God. That's the pattern that repeats itself throughout the book of Judges and throughout the Old Testament, and sadly, as is so often the case throughout our lives as well. But as we'll see, just as the land was typological and points to our eternal home in heaven, so also the rest that was received is also typological and also points ahead to the rest that we will have in heaven. That's exactly how the writer of Hebrews explains it in 4.8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So even though here we see that God had given them rest, but then we see in Hebrews that they really didn't have rest, that Joshua 
could not have given them rest. National Israel didn't get it, but spiritual Israel will get it. And fellow Christians, we also will get it. The first Joshua couldn't give them rest. But Jesus Christ, the true Joshua, the Joshua to which the original Joshua pointed, well, actually, I guess Jesus Christ is the original Joshua, he is the one in whom we have our rest. Jewish believers refer to, to Joshua as Yeshua. It's the same name. We talked about that a couple months ago. And it means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. And that's where we find our rest in the Lord. So here on the other side of the cross, we see that God's rest is far more profound and far more powerful than any national land, than any physical land. It's far better than what the Levites and the people of Israel had received. It's far better than anything that they could have understood 1,400 years prior to the cross. But here we live 2,000 years after the cross, and we get it. We understand the rest. We understand that, that although we have been given rest in the already sense, we have committed our lives to Jesus Christ, we know that there is still sin and suffering in the world. We know that we look forward to a rest that is yet to come. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fellow Christians, we are not only heirs with Christ, we are heirs of Christ. He is our treasure. He is our inheritance. He is our eternal blessing. So we can really understand what Joshua wrote in chapter 1333, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Brothers and sisters, the Lord God of Israel is our inheritance. The psalmist writes in, one, in Psalm 142, verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. So is Jesus Christ your portion? Are you sitting here as a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you committed your way to him? Are you resting in him and seeking him alone for all eternity? Let's pray.